Well, Nick, I can't believe it's been a full year since we did the OBGYN Intern Challenge of 2021. Yes, and I think the most exciting news that we're going to break on the podcast today is that it's back for 2022. Yes. So if you are a fourth-year medical student who has matched into OBGYN residency in the United States, we highly encourage you to participate. And um, we will be sending out an enrollment form on our website and also we'll be putting it onto our Twitter as well as all of our other social media platforms. So you should definitely sign up. Yes. Head over to obginternchallenge.com. Check out the enrollment tab and you can find the enrollment survey there. We'll start the course up on May 2nd, so get excited. And as always, this is absolutely free for you if you are a medical student. Definitely take advantage of this course that will hopefully help you and get you prepared for your intern year. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs. Over coffee. All right, so today we're coming back with part two of our updates in pap smear screening and management. Today we're going to focus on those high-grade lesions. Um, so Faye, what are our learning objectives? So today we're going to familiarize ourselves with the management of, as you said, those high-risk squamous lesions for cervical cancer screening. We're going to review management of colposcopic biopsy results. I know we're all going to love that. Um, and findings of squamous abnormalities. And then finally, we'll discuss, um, you know, the less common pap results. So like what happens if you get those like glandular lesions and like insufficient pap smears. So let's get right into it, Nick. Talk to me about those high-grade squamous lesions. So like your ASC-H and your h yeah, so ASCH or atypical squamous cells cannot rule out high grade is probably the easiest thing to remember. It just merits colposcopy regardless of HPV status. And so that's, I think, the nicest thing about it. But then the down-the-line management kind of starts to vary by age. And then also will lump in to some degree HSIL or high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions because the management proceeds along kind of similar guidelines. In younger patients who are under age 25, so you're 21 to 24-year-olds who got cytology screening, um, ASCH and HSIL get treated the exact same. You're just going to proceed again to colposcopy. But in patients who are 25 and older, while ASCH will go to colposcopy, HSIL can actually proceed down two different routes, either immediately to excision or with a colposcopy prior to excision. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing that you know, you'd go straight to excision after getting a cytology result like that. But there is a good rationale for it here. After an HCL pap, the overall five-year CIN2 or greater risk is 77% for patients above age 25. And if you get a little even further along the pathway for CIN3+, the risk is 49%. So given that high, high risk, it's acceptable to proceed directly to excision without doing colposcopy, because if you flip a coin, you are going to end up with CIN3 in the next five years. Most patients with HCIL as well will have HPV-positive testing, um, but even if you have a negative HPV result, that HCIL pathology carries a five-year CIN3 risk of 25% and an invasive cancer risk of 7%. Still very sizable risks. 
Thus, it's acceptable to again proceed straight to excision, even with negative HPV in the context of H-cell. One way to think about this alternatively is a number needed to treat, which Faye, I didn't realize or ever think about like a number needed to treat for excisional procedures, but it's actually super impressive in this context. For a patient who has HCIL and HPV positive status, the number needed to treat is 1.7. Wow. That is, you need 1.7 excisional procedures to treat a CIN3 or greater. So that's a super low rate of overtreatment. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the converse, the HCIL HPV negative, so where that CIN3 five-year risk is only about 25%, the number needed to treat is actually still really low at only 2.8%. So again, these are worrisome lesions that show up on pap smear if you get H-cell. And so again, in those patients who are 25 and older, we tend to move more directly towards excisional procedures. But you can still do colposcopy. That's acceptable prior to excision. So let's move to talking about that, Faye. No, colposcopy is one of those things that on a podcast, we're not going to be able to discuss or describe. You really have to see like acetoite changes and mosaicism and all of that stuff for yourself, I think. Um, but let's we can talk about in a podcast, though, about what exactly to do about a result that you get from a colposcopy. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I wanted to go back really quickly to what you said about the number needed to treat because like, you know, for magnesium, for prevention of eclampsia, even for people with symptoms, the number needed to treat is 36. Yeah. So like a 1.7, 2.8, you know, number needed to treat is super low. But let's get back to the subject at hand. So, you know, what do we do about our findings, right? So you do your biopsy, you get your histology results. It's CIN1, 2, 3, you know, cancer, God forbid. So if we have CIN1, this really depends on the preceding pap cytology and the patient's age. And really, this is like probably the most confusing one that you're going to come across. Let's say you have CIN1 and the patient had an H-cell cytology. Many strategies are now acceptable. You can observe, which basically doing colposcopy and cytology in patients under 25 or HPV-based testing with colposcopy in patients 25 and older at one year. You can do an excisional procedure, which is not recommended in patients who are less than 25, or you can do a pathology review to determine if there's like a discrepancy in the previous interpretation of cytology or histology. With observation, um, this is usually going to be more typical in your younger patients, you should do colposcopy and cytology with HPV testing again in one year. And and if these are negative, then age-specific retesting should happen again in an additional year, followed by HPV-based testing every three years for at least 25 years. If there's any abnormality, meaning anything other than normal PAP negative HPV, then you have to manage that using the ASCCP guideline for the specific abnormality, though specifically if it's h again, then excision is recommended. Unless the patient is still under 25, then observation can be continued for up to two years prior to recommendation for excision. This one is, again, the most... Uh, confusing one because you can do anything. If this was preceded by ASK-H cytology, then observation is the most typical strategy. And usually if someone is under 25, you'll perform cytology or HPV-based testing if they're 25 or older in one year. Again, if that testing is negative, then HPV-based testing can resume in three years. And if it's abnormal, then you manage according to the ASCCP guideline. And specifically, if you progress to H-cell, then that is going to be a recommendation for excision, again, if you're over the age of 25. 
Persistent ask age can be repeated again in a year, but excision is recommended if over age 25 and the ask age persists for two years. And for those under 25, age still or ask age, if that persists for two years, then you can recommend excision at that time. And then the very last thing is, you know, before your CIN1, you had ASCUS or ELSIL. Then the recommendation is just to repeat co-testing at 12 months and 24 months. And then if it's normal, go back to your normal testing every three years. And then if there's an abnormality in this two-year window, then the management, again, should be performed according to the cytology. Though, again, if there's progression to HCIL, colpo, and or excision is recommended, again, using the same guidelines as we stated for ASK-H. All right, so <laughs> that was very confusing, Nick, because I feel like that gave us every single possible rendition. Um, but let's say you got CIN2 or 3 on your biopsy. What would you do then? Now, fortunately, CIN2 and 3 get a bit simpler than CIN1. CIN2 and 3 are typically going to warrant an excisional procedure, but we break it down into CIN2 and CIN3. For CIN2 specifically, observation is considered acceptable in patients who are under the age of 25, or for patients 25 and older, if there are concerns about future pregnancy that, for that particular patient, outweighs their concerns about cervical cancer. So you need to talk with your patients if they have CIN2, CIN3 about that significant risk for progression to cervical cancer and their fertility and the concerns associated with excisional procedure with respect to preterm birth, etc. about what the right strategy is for them. If it's the case that they want to continue observation with CIN2, then colposcopy and HPV-based testing should occur at 6 and 12 months after the initial diagnosis. If you get those two consecutive evaluations with less than ASK-H cytology, that is the pap smear part, and less than CIN2 histology, that is the colposcopy part, then you can space the testing annually for three total years. So this is now a four-year plan. We did 6 and 12 months, and then annually for three years. If the tests are abnormal in that four-year window, then you can go back to doing Q six-month testing that can continue for up to two years. But if CIN3 is developed on colposcopy at any point or those abnormalities persist for more than two years, excision becomes more definitively recommended at that point. So again, that's kind of like a confusing algorithm overall. But basically, again, with CIN2, you're looking to see at six-month intervals whether there's regression or not. And if it's continuing or it's progressing and that happens for more than two years, you got to tell your patient, hey, it's time to go ahead and excise this. For CIN3, observation is not advised at all. So those patients should proceed straight to an excisional procedure. Again, the risk of cancer is much, much higher for CIN3. Okay, and so that's much more straightforward, fortunately. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about excision and sort of what to do with it. Basically, the management of an excision is going to be based on your margins. After a leap or a cone procedure, for CIN3 or less, you'll do co-testing at 12 and 24 months with repeat colposcopy needed for any abnormal result. If the margins are positive on your excision, then you've got three choices. You can do repeat cytology and HPV testing with an endocervical curatage and doing that every four to six months. You can attempt a repeat excision if it's feasible to do so, or you can recommend hysterectomy at that point too. 
ASCCP notes that hysterectomy should only really be considered if the repeat excision is not feasible or if high-grade abnormalities are persistent after an attempted repeat excision. So you don't have to go after it like twice, for instance. Okay, so unfortunately, the CIN123 management can be kind of confusing, but I promise on the website we will have a good summary as well as some of the algorithms from ASCCP. Let's talk next, Faye, about one that we don't see too frequently on colposcopic biopsy, but is definitely one to be worried about in AIS. So AIS, or adenocarcinoma in situ, if that is identified, then excision is needed to rule out invasive cancer. And traditionally, this has been recommended that it be a cold knife cone instead of a LEAP procedure. Um, but actually, you know, there have been some studies that show that potentially there's no difference in a highly uh, trained surgeon with LEAP versus cold knife cone. You just have to get the entire biopsy in one and you can't do your top hat procedure uh, with your LEAP. Um, but basically, once you do your excisional procedure, if the margins are positive, then re-excision is recommended to try and achieve negative margins. But if the margins are negative, then hysterectomy is generally preferred after the excision. And the excision is mandatory. You can't just say, oh, there's AIS, I'm going to go straight to my hysterectomy. Because if there is invasive cervical cancer, if it's advanced enough, then the hysterectomy may actually not be the recommended treatment. If the margins are negative and the patient actually desires fertility, then reevaluation with HPV-based testing every six months for three years, then annually for two years is acceptable. However, hysterectomy is recommended following childbearing. So let's switch gears a little bit, Nick. Um, we've been talking about, you know, if your pap comes back with something. But what if your pap comes back with nothing? Like they tell you unsatisfactory cytology. Yeah, that's super frustrating. It's also the one that is going to show up in real life, not infrequently, but is never going to show up on your exam. Um, or at least I've never seen it show up on an exam that I've taken or in any like question bank things at all. But I've definitely seen it show up in like my in basket, for instance. And I'm like, crap, I didn't do the pap right. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, there are some recommendations on how to proceed with this. One important thing is that if you got an HPV result, you can pretty much just follow that. If the patient's got HPV, especially type 16 or 18, then colposcopy is warranted. If the HPV is negative in someone who's 25 or older, or if there's no HPV result, or if the HPV result is unknown for some reason, then it's recommended to repeat the cytology in two to four months. If in that two to four month repeat, you get hypothetically, again, a unsatisfactory cytology, at that point, colposcopy is recommended. And here it's not necessarily that it's tied to a disease state, but it's kind of just a good idea at that point to look and figure out what you're missing if you manage to get two in a row that are unsatisfactory. Yeah, that'll be after I finish banging my head against the desk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So another weird one, Faye, that pops up is getting a result that on the surface sounds good and negative for intraepithelial lesion, but then the lab comments that there is an absent transformation zone or absence of endocervical cells. Yeah, so this is actually also usually an insufficient PAP that didn't sample that transformation area from glandular to squamous cell. Um, and this is the area where most HPV-associated disease is located. So 
effectively it's an insufficient pap. If that patient is young though, so if they're 21 or 24, then you can actually continue with routine screening. If they're age 25 or older, then you can kind of screen by whatever their HPV result comes back as. So if it's negative for HPV, continue with your routine screening. If for some reason it's unknown, then repeat cytology in three years or get HPV testing. And if it's positive, then you follow the HPV positive management guidelines, which as a reminder for 16, 18 is colposcopy and for any other type of HPV would be to repeat the HPV-based test in one year. All right, Nick, I think we're down to probably our last couple of findings. So what if you get back on your pap atypical glandular cell or atypical endometrial cells? Yeah, these are weird pathologies, but can be harbingers of both cervical and endometrial cancer. And so your workup is going to be a little different. So if atypical glandular cells or other subcategories of that pop up, the recommended initial workup is colposcopy and endocervical sampling. Endometrial sampling should also be performed with AGC if the patient is 35 or older or under 35 with risk factors for endometrial cancer, such as a history of abnormal uterine bleeding, chronic anovulation, or obesity. If your PAP is significant for atypical endometrial cells specifically, um, endometrial and endocervical sampling are recommended, and colposcopy can also be performed at that initial evaluation. It doesn't have to be, but generally colposcopy should be performed there, as if ultimately the other samplings are negative, you're going to need to do a colposcopy later on. So many folks just do all three at the same time, your endometrial, your endocervical, and your colpo at all together. Management then proceeds on the basis of your findings for these tests. Um, and again, you're worried about high-grade precancers or cancers. So if there's no CIN2 or greater, no adeno in situ, no endometrial cancer, then you can proceed with just co-testing at one and two years, and then you can space from there to every three years if things remain negative. If you identify CIN2 or greater, or if the initial cytology had something called atypical glandular cells concerning for neoplasia, then excisional procedures are typically recommended at that point. So again, be sure to go through all of the testing for these special kind of pathologies that are rare. And it's always worth consulting guidelines just to make sure you're getting all of the things your patient needs. All right, Faye, I think that does it for today. I'm not sure how helpful a summary ultimately is going to be to try and go through these, but I think we can try to shout out that ASCCP app. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, if you guys have 10 bucks lying around, I at least would highly recommend that you get that ASCCP app to help you figure out your algorithms because frankly, everything that we talked about can get very confusing and very hairy quickly. And, you know, it's a pain in the butt to memorize all of this anyway. Um, so I at least always look at my ASCCP guideline to kind of make sure that I'm doing the right thing for the patient. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, so I guess that does it then for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatchers, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. 
You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and every other show on our website, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week. That'll be at www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our previous episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Our friends over at Rosh Review have a special deal that they're offering for um, residents out there. So if you like access to Rosh Review, you and your friends can come together and get a group discount. So if you have at least seven of you and your friends and want to get this discount, you can come together and chat with Rosh email them, and you'll also get your own subscription for free. All the members of your group on top of this will get free access to a new mock ABOG qualifying exam, which is 200 additional ABOG formatted questions that's set up like the actual ABOG qualifying exam. That's your written boards. That's $119 value. So if you and your friends want to have access to Rosh, go ahead and go onto our website where we'll put a link and uh, you'll be able to sign up right there. All right, Faye. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is this recently released CHAPS trial. And I saw on the OBG project that they've got a great summary out already. Yeah. So if you want to keep up to date to all those studies that are coming out, not only in OBGYN, but also other practice changing studies and other specialties, make sure you go onto the OBG project and sign up so that you can keep up to date. Fourth-year residents can get the premium project, OBG First, absolutely free. It allows you to create your own library, save resources for you to be able to access later, as well as see something like the second trimester ultrasound atlas that lets you get brushed up on all those images that are going to show up on your written boards. And of course, if you are a resident in general, you can get their core curriculum uh, on their website. So make sure you go ahead and go onto our website to figure out a little bit more about how to sign up for the OBG project and also how to sign up for OBG first.